0: Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Camaro, an autistic certified financial planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen.
1: Hey, Andrew. Hey, everyone. I'm Eileen Lamb. I'm an autistic author and photographer from France. I live in Austin, Texas now with my two autistic children. And with Andrew, we run this podcast because we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults and not just inspirational stories. You know, we want to hear from real people talking about their boring life or not boring. Um, We want to give a voice to people like us, basically.
0: Today, our guest is Haley Moss. Haley made international headlines for becoming the first documented openly autistic attorney admitted to the Florida Bar. She received her JD from the University of Miami School of Law in 2018 graduated from University of Florida in 2015. In addition to being a lawyer, Haley is a neurodiversity advocate and author. Haley is the author of Great Minds, Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. And her next book, The Young Autistic Adult Independent Handbook, will be released in November 2021. She is also the author of Middle School, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About, a freshman survival guide for college students with autism spectrum disorders, the stuff nobody tells you about. Haley's work on neurodiversity, autism and disability has been published in the Washington Huff Post, Teen Vogue, Fast Company, among others. She was appointed to the Florida Bar Young Lawyers Division Board of Governors and the Florida Bar Journal editorial board. Haley also serves on the constituency board for the University of Miami Nova Southeastern University Center for Autism and Related Disabilities. And if you are looking to have Haley, she needs more things to do to add to her bio, so.
2: I'm just tired all the time. And then, I li- and then every time I listen to someone talk about me, I'm like, are we talking about the same person? Because I'm pretty sure I am just the 20 something who has no idea what they're doing.
1: Haley, thanks for having us. <laughs> for being here today thanks for bearing <laughs> with us too actually we're just
0: 30 somethings who have no idea what we're doing for the record and just happen to have a podcast so and so it's all good
2: is that, exactly i think that i think that's the really great thing and that a lot of us don't talk about is there's this kind of expectation that you have to have it together and every time i see 30 somethings neurotypical or neurodivergent I'm like they all have it together they know what they're doing and then everyone tells me the same thing that they're all basically just three toddlers in a trench coat and nobody knows what they're doing And I think we kind of have to make peace with that. Everyone is trying to kind of figure their way through life. And I think especially for autistic people, because we're always told like, you have to hit this magic independence point. You have to do this. You have to hit these like magic milestones. And it's like, that's a load of crap because everybody is on their own individual thing and no one feels like they really know what they're doing.
1: Yeah, we don't know what we're doing. And I think that shows (laughs) sometimes, but that's okay. We wing it, we make it work. And I think it's a good thing to normalize. Um, We start podcast by asking our guests uh how they like to identify so pronouns and person with autism or autistic uh so what's your take on all the identity language
2: all right so identity so my pronouns are she her i also am jewish i am a woman and i am autistic i say that i'm autistic because i'm proud of it it's part of who i am and I can't really take it off or take it with me or set it down and take it to the beach for fun. And if I'm living with autism in particular, it's a really terrible roommate because it doesn't do the laundry and it doesn't help with the dishes. But I wish I was living with autism because autism would have maybe been a good roommate. Maybe. Probably not. It doesn't have very good executive functioning skills.
0: So, yeah, I don't like doing the dishes or the laundry. I actually made a casual day at the office last week for the purpose of because I didn't want to do laundry for white shirts. Um, so... Okay, and tell us, so tell us a bit more about your autism diagnosis and journey, again, for your biography um, or or introduction with a book even on middle school, you were diagnosed at a younger age and have been an advocate since at least middle school. Is that correct? Can you tell us more?
2: Sure, so I was very lucky, I feel, and I like to kind of circle this back because I feel very privileged to have been diagnosed as a little kid. So I was diagnosed when I was three, And I was non-speaking. I actually got kicked out of preschool. So my, when I was in preschool, I didn't color within the lines. I didn't drink out of a cup properly. So we know how little kids are kind of supposed to drink out of a cup like this. I copied the dog and tried to slurp it like out of the bowl. Preschool was not exactly too thrilled with me. I have lots of really on brand stories about me kind of being a strange kid or a little bit of a terror from childhood. So that's the kind of stuff that led me to get diagnosed. And I realized what a privilege it was, even though yep, as we know, the late nineties were a very different time. So I was diagnosed in 1997 and that was before the big days of everything is on the internet. You can get all the information you want. There's tons of organizations that will connect you and lots of autistic adults you can very easily get information from. So when I was diagnosed, my parents didn't have as much information. They were given kind of a doom and gloom report as a lot of clinicians tended to do it because their version of autism was very singular of this, you are going to end up in this, basically like your life is going to be terrible. And my parents were really big on early intervention. So we did things like floor time and I got to ride horses and I always had a lot of adults playing games with me. I was the only kid. So I was very used to having a lot of attention anyway. So I guess that was kind of that journey and getting diagnosed and kind of a little bit about early intervention. All I know is I was a happy kid and people always wanted to play with me. So I did not ever think something was really off when I was a little kid. Even when I wouldn't get invited to birthday parties and stuff or excluded socially, my parents always found a way to spin it as like, I was the cool kid and everyone else was kind of weird. So I kind of had the complete opposite experience that meant a lot of other folks who were diagnosed later in life or who just didn't have parents that were super accepting. And I found out I was autistic when I was nine because my parents decided to compare it to Harry Potter because my special interest at the time was the Harry Potter series. We talked about how different is neither better nor worse. It's just different. And different can be extraordinary. So Harry Potter didn't fit in with the muggles because he was obviously a wizard. And he didn't quite fit in with the wizards because he had that giant scar on his face. But he was still the hero of the story and he was still cool and everyone still loved the series. Like that was kind of what I was given. And I actually got into autism advocacy when I was just about off to go to high school. What did you do then? So I was actually invited to go to the Autism Society of America conference. I agreed to go because it was through the University of Miami and the University of Miami. So I you mentioned that I serve on the board there and UM actually was some of the folks that originally diagnosed me. So it's like a very full circle thing for me. And they invited me and I'm like, sure, I'll go do this. I'll do this panel. And it's in Orlando. And when you're like 13, you want to go because you want to go to Disney World. Even when you live in, look, I live in Florida. I've been to Disney World plenty of times, but I still wanted an excuse to go to Disney World. So I agreed to sit on this panel and it was all older men. And 13 year old me and people wanted to hear what 13 year old me had to say and it was very confusing and very baffling but i met lots of cool people so i actually was listening to past episodes and i saw that you had bridget rankowski on bridget was the first person that i met at the Autism society of america conference like this is a very small world and at that conference i actually got connected with folks at autism asperger publishing And that is how middle school came to be as well. So that was kind of how I got started in this. I feel like it was by accident because I never intended to tell people I was autistic. I never planned to make it a public part of my life. It just sort of happened that way.
1: How about college? How was that? Um, When I was in France, I tried college for three years in a row and I failed all three years. Not only did I fail, but after a month of trying to go to college, I just, I quit. So I ended up doing a month every year and then quitting and doing nothing until the next, uh, the next year because it was just way too overwhelming and it was mm-hmm. friends so there was no accommodation or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know I was autistic back, th- back then which is mm-hmm. insane looking back. Um, so how was it because you had to be in college for like what eight years? <laughs>
2: <Four>? So, <laughs> so I, I was in undergrad for three so I was always very good at school I was not very good at everything else that school was about. So when we say like I did well in college, yeah, I had great grades. I did two majors in three years. So I was, I was a brain in college. That didn't mean that I was good at anything else. I struggled so much with living away from home. I had never even stayed at grandparents' house on my own. Like I had no experience with being away from mom and dad. And in my infinite wisdom, I went to a school with 50,000 people and I honestly found it incredibly overwhelming as well. And I think it, I took solace in the fact that I thought school itself was very easy, but I didn't do a good job making friends. I had a horrible freshman roommate who I will not name for obvious reasons, but she, she and I did not get along whatsoever. And it was a disaster. I moved out and that was the one time I was able to get an accommodation at school is to actually move into like a single dorm room and not have a roommate. And I haven't had a roommate since. That's how much having roommates was soured for me in college. And I actually did my third year from home. So that made it a lot better. I did it. I was able to finish online because I finished most of the hard classes anyway and saved all those like basic stuff for before I graduated. So that, that helped a lot. And then when I went to law school, I went to university of Miami, which is closer to my family. It was the right thing for me. Law school was overwhelming and we can unpack law school all day long because law school is where I didn't get support from the university. and. I was kind of self-accommodating the whole way through, and I spent the entire time really thinking I was just lazy and dumb, but I had more support in my personal life because I wasn't that far from home. I went home or saw my parents nearly every week that I lived less than an hour away from home, so I was always able to go home, or or they'd come visit me, and my parents would help me with things like cooking, or cleaning, or just hang out together, and it was truly a blessing to have that, but I think there's so much of school that's beyond inaccessible, and I really hope that that changes and it's just frustrating to see because it's not that, for instance, like you're not smart enough or you can't handle something like college. It's more of that the support isn't in place and it takes so much work to even get that support or that you have to prove all of this documentation or you have to be able to navigate some system that isn't designed with you in mind in the first place.
1: I think that's amazing because when I was in France, I lived a five minute walk from the university college and I still couldn't do it. You know, you say you were seeing your parents once a week. I mean that's not a lot I mean I know you know considering college it feels like a lot for most kids but like to mm-hmm. me that feels uh not, not like a lot and then I ended up coming here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. far away from my family and I actually did amazing just because the people here were so much more open-minded to like being weird basically <laughs> I feel like I don't- be weird here
2: really because I don't always think people I always think people are not that open-minded and sometimes I wonder if it's even just the culture of where in the US we live because yeah I think Miami people generally speaking I think a lot of Miamians are very rude yeah. and they're not that accepting I think Miami is its own kind of ecosystem there
1: I, I agree and I'm lucky I'm in Austin and Austin is also its own thing in Texas like Texas isn't great but Austin is <laughs> is amazing and so accepting of everybody yeah
0: and let's not even get me started on how I feel about Connecticut. But Connecticut's great. Sarcasm. Um,
2: <laughs> Thank you for the so... sarcasm warning. Because I otherwise would have probably, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I would yeah. probably, I would have probably bought it. See, Florida, Florida's its own world anyway, but Miami's its own world within Florida.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, in Connecticut, you can get anywhere within an hour. So when someone says, like, where in Connecticut, it's like, okay, well, how do you know someone in Connecticut? Because nobody says where in Connecticut. Um, so anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you so it sounds like your parents were really supportive of you from a young age, and how, how do you feel about your parents with how they they raised you? Um, you mentioned that you're Jewish as well as I am um, and just in general I, I find that oh, the the culture of just like so much family and social and food and just also how do you feel with it sounds like they were very supportive of you? How do you think they feel about where you are now as well
2: So we actually have a very small family so contrary to what you're saying we were very insular so a lot of our family was estranged or not as understanding and it was most a lot of the times it was the three of us and a couple other relatives but and we didn't always just like get together at thanksgiving or major holidays so it was always kind of small in navigating that but i are do they think adopting? there was huh
0: i said are they adopting no um, oh no no <laughs> I, I,
2: I, my mom wants dog my mom wants another dog though so she's really hoping to get another standard poodle in the near future. We, we lost our big guy back at Thanksgiving and she's a wreck without having a dog around. So we would, we would like to have another family dog again. So that's probably the closest to adoption we're going to get, but my parents are seriously the best. So I know you probably hear all sorts of different stories about parents, but I am one of those people who thinks that my parents did it as well as they could. And in many times I think they were ahead of their time. So we talk a lot about parenting with acceptance and I actually had this conversation with my mom the other day is because she was probably she was actually talking to me about neurodiversity and stuff and she's like this is really cool and I'm like you know this is stuff you've been doing you were always beyond accepting of me and encouraging me to follow and and harness my strengths. like even if you didn't have the vocabulary of what we consider social justice or movement work or whatever it might be like it didn't mean that you didn't understand it and she didn't and she really just appreciated that because even looking at history, like a lot of these term, a lot of the terminology that we use now and a lot of the concepts that we have now didn't exist in the late nineties. And she's like, but we did the best of what we could. And I'm like, yeah, but you, I think you did it right. You stuck to things that you knew I would enjoy. You would try things even if I didn't enjoy them. We tried to get me to do sports and it didn't go well. And instead of forcing me to stay in sports we just pivoted to something else. Like my parents were very supportive and honestly, they're very, very proud. And sometimes I think I think this goes for a lot of us. I kind of have this like perfectionism thing at times and I feel like I'm not gonna be enough. And my parents are exactly the kind of people who will reassure me that I am more than enough. And I don't think that deep down they wish they had a different kid. I think that my parents were the perfect people for me. And I think looking back, the only thing that I guess that would have been cool is if they had autistic friends. But I think that was kind of like some far-fetched like weird dream of mine because then it would have been cool to be like, okay, as a little kid when you first find out about something that's very foreign to you beyond the babysitter's club books and like after school special type stuff it would have been cool to have an actual human being that you knew or that they knew to attach it to and be like oh okay yeah kind of like their friend so-and-so no big deal but I don't fault them for that I just think that would have been kind of a cool bonus feature.
1: So you were lucky to have a supportive supportive parents. Um, Mm -hmm. I think most parents are Mm -hmm. very supportive of their children and it it really makes me sad to see what's happening on on social media um i know we don't we don't agree on on everything and you've published uh articles in the past how you think parents shouldn't uh talk about their
2: children online uh i don't i don't necessarily believe that i think there's a balance between privacy and exploitation that's kind of where i stand is there's just a balance of what can't What can we share without jeopardizing somebody's privacy? I think that's just how I see it. Just kind of want to clarify that. And I
1: I just don't see a lot of like the the really bad things uh, being talked about on social media by parents. A lot of the time, the parents who are being attacked are sharing things that are so uh, normal and and very respectful. And it just Mm -hmm. really, really saddens me to see the bullying and harassment that is going on in the neurodiversity movement. And I've never seen you do any of that. Uh, Let's... Make this clear, but mm-hmm. uh, I know you're also an, an advocate for the neurodiversity movement, um, and I want to know where, where you stand on that with the the way they treat parents. Um, how do you feel about supporting a movement that also has uh, you know issues and, and problems in the way they treat uh, other people?
2: So I think every movement, every group, I think everything kind of comes with flaws. I think that it's hard to assign that to an entire movement rather than just a bunch of individuals who are acting out for whatever their reason is. Maybe they think that parents are the enemy because they had a difficult relationship with their parents. Maybe they have nothing better to do or they have their own self-esteem issues. I think a lot of it is individuals who want to latch onto something and that hurt people hurt people. I think the majority of parents who are seeking support on the internet or who are looking to learn from autistic adults, they're coming from a good place. They want to understand their kid They want access to information. They want to know something. They might be looking for hope. They might be looking for support. They might be looking for all sorts of things. And I think that it's really important that no matter how you feel about causes or different therapies or different interventions, I think that it's really important that we listen and that we understand that people oftentimes are coming from places where they don't have the same knowledge or information that we do. And it's important to understand that we're able to help people. That's why all of us, do this advocacy work, if that's what we want to call it, is we're doing it because we care about kids, we care about adults, and we want them to have better than we do as adults, and we wanted them to have better than we might have had when we were kids. So I think that's kind of how I see it.
1: I just don't call it advocacy when they attack parents online, especially since a lot of the people who do that haven't even had like, let's talk about ABA, for instance, and to call parents who express sadness about their kids' diagnosis, martyr, martyr, uh, martyr moms, and, you know, posting memes, uh, shaming them for, you know, just saying autism is not always a gift uh, for everyone. It can be for some people, but it's not for for everyone. And the spectrum is so broad and no one can speak for an entire community. So yeah, it's great to listen to the experience of other people on the spectrum, but Mm -hmm. their experience is not going to be the same experience as My my child, or my experience, or the kid next door—it's
2: it's it's all different. Everybody's experience is different, and I think that no matter where you're coming from, I think bullying absolutely needs to be condemned. No matter who the bully is, whether they're neurotypical, neurodivergent, whatever race, ethnicity, other identities they hold, I think no matter what, bullies have no place anywhere in these movements. And I think it's—I also kind of come from the places: Why are these people doing this? Like, they're not just attacking parents for that. Usually, just to be trolls, they're usually just hurt people, they have their own trauma and they're unfairly loading it, unloading it on people who don't deserve it and who just want support or information. There is grief. There are people who they don't feel that autism is a gift and there's people who think that it's both a gift and a disability. And everyone agrees that autism is a disability. I don't think there's any question there. Oh, there I is a question. I've gotten I, I so don't... many
1: comments on it. I mean, I can send you a screenshot after the interview. <laughs> People <laughs> saying that it's not a disability because, uh, well, first of all, there is the social model and the other model. I don't even know what it's called. The, but... the, med- the medical model. So or I, the medical, right. I was actually uh, a
2: disability minor in college. So you can, both of them are not incompatible with each other, which is... I think the social model is a little too idealistic and the medical model is too pragmatic. So there's always something kind of in the middle of both that makes them work. Like the social model, even in a perfect world, I would still be disabled by autism. The world, exactly. is, never be this, yeah. the world is never gonna be this magical, sensory friendly place where everybody is understanding. I will still struggle with certain independent living skills no matter how accepting and sensory friendly the world becomes. There are certain things that will always be hard for me. There's always gonna be a communication gap between me and neurotypical people. It just kind of is that way. And the same goes even for people who have physical disabilities is that even if everything is perfectly accessible, their bodies might still behave differently. Yes, that should be accepted. And those barriers to access shouldn't be there because of society, but there's still stuff they're going to struggle with anyway, and that they might want to alleviate some of those symptoms. Like I would be totally fine if we had cures for things like anxiety or chronic pain or any of that stuff. So I think that there's somewhere in the middle of those models that things really kind of do work. I think that We have to avoid being overly basically stigmatizing and pathologizing things, but also realizing that just sticking straight to a social model is almost too idealistic. And it's not, it's just not realistic that we're gonna live in this perfect accepting, sensory friendly, accessible world, even though I would love to see it, I just don't think it's realistic, that there are still things that will be disabling no matter what.
1: Not only that, but yeah, like for someone like my child who can not communicate beyond like, I want water, I want cookie. Uh, even if everyone is accepting of, of that, like what happens when he can not tell me if he's hurting, for instance, what happens there? Nothing is gonna change just because everyone is accepting, oh, you're hurting, we don't know where, I'm so sorry. That's not gonna be helpful. Exactly, so that doesn't
2: help you and that doesn't help your child. No, it it's doesn't hard help hard. anybody, yeah.
0: And from well, hey, uh, Andrew. Oh, oh hey, hi. No, it actually and and it, um, no, but in all seriousness, the other thing too, from like a legal point of view, and I've been thinking about this because I do a lot from my world, there's so many different definitions of disability, right? Mm-hmm. So in the United States, for the most part, being disabled is usually defined by the ability not to do, you know, substantial gainful employment that that's the definition that's attached to most services support but having a disability right according to the ADA is again another definition and even then when you say you're disabled mm-hmm. in a non-work environment there's like six different definitions of being disabled even from like mm-hmm. a you know a not being able to work perspective so mm-hmm. i'm also afraid of us taking it too far to mm-hmm. well that's how we're defining a lot of the protections that we need and that mm-hmm. exist yeah so
2: Disability is really complicated because it's such a broad umbrella, but I do think the ADA definition, I know they expanded it to be a little bit more inclusive because in, in, under the 1990 definition, and I actually have done a lot of legal research and I've read a lot of court holdings, but there were times that social, things that were seen as more social impairments and things like autism didn't always get covered under the ADAs. There was this like not disabled enough type thing going on, which is what happened with those 2008 amendments to the, the ADA that made sure that we had all of these other conditions that were basically covered. So the ADA definition, if you're listening and you aren't really familiar, the ADA defines disability as a condition that basically limits, substantially limits one or more major life activity. And major life activities could be pretty broad of a category. to be like eating, drinking, thinking, sleeping, concentrating, moving, walking, all sorts of stuff. So that's how you get a lot of different conditions, whether it's chronic pain, invisible disabilities, mobility disabilities. We have things like autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, that all get covered, even chronic conditions and things like cancer, heart disease, et cetera, get covered under the ADA. So that's kind of something that's really important is disabilities, not exactly, you know, a monolith. It's a really big community and it's the only minority group. It's the only minority group. If you have the pleasure of living a long time that you probably will join in your life. Chances are we all, if you're, if you're, if you're fortunate enough to live a long life, you will probably experience some form of disability.
1: Yeah. Oh, and something else. I think disability is not a dirty word. I feel like a lot of people don't like, like saying I'm disabled or, Mm -hmm. but it's okay. I mean, we should like break the mm stigma around the word. And I think Mm -hmm. that would fix uh, a lot of the issues around people saying that autism is not a disability um Mm -hmm. also that's confusing to me yeah I'm going back on that but (laughs) why how can autism not be a disability because to be diagnosed with autism it needs to be disabling to you you know else you don't meet criteria for diagnosis so Mm -hmm. it's really confusing to me how people would say that autism is not a disability for them I mean I I respect it as long as they don't say autism is not a disability at all if they say it's not a disability for me I'm okay with it even though it still confuses me
2: because if it's not Mm -hmm. then why are you autistic you know because it is I I think that I think that makes a lot of sense and I think for a lot of people who say it's not a disability for them I think that kind of comes from this idea of like internalized ableism and kind of seeing the messaging surrounding autism as they think of it as this very severely disabling limiting thing and they go well that's not my experience therefore I'm not disabled which is complete bs honestly is I think that a lot of people are afraid of disability and the idea of being called disabled because think about the messaging we're giving about disability from the time we're little kids how many times have you seen someone in a wheelchair when you were little or you saw someone with mobility aids and your parents told you like don't stare don't ask questions like that's weird that's impolite we're already told from the get-go disability is bad
0: not sure. that it's and, just
2: a nor- not that it's just a normal part of existing. People's bodies and, don't always work the way we want them to.
0: And, and we were talking a, a bit before, Haley, about again, conservatorship, guardianship, and, and just because, you know, the word autism is used, right? That it's assumed mm-hmm. that, oh, you're 18. Okay, well, you can't make decisions. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know, I, I talk to a lot of parents a lot of times, they come to us when they're turning 18, and it's well. Well, at 18, did you know exactly what you were going to be? Did you know exactly what you wanted to do? Did, were you, you know, completely perfect and ready to be independent at 18? No. And, no, I'm not
2: even. I didn't, I didn't even know how to do, I got to college and I didn't even know how to do laundry. I had that's, no idea. That's, which, why you
0: lived, that's why you went I, to your parents' house once a week, no, right?
2: No, no I, didn't go to my par- <laughs> I didn't get to go to my parents' until law school. That was three years later. God. When I was an undergrad, I remember doing laundry in the dorms, and I put everything in the dryer first because I didn't know which was the washer and which was the dryer because they looked nothing like the washer and dryer that we had at home. Therefore, I had no clue which was which. And then I walked out with a bunch of warm soapy clothes, and I was like, oh, oh, cool. Great. That was a waste of 50 cents. <laughs> And it just felt so naive. Like, and then I was like, oh, it's because it's not the same maker model as the washer and dryer at home, obviously, because you're used to the sameness and routine. And my routine of doing laundry with quarters and in the dorms, these really terrible machines that were super slow. That wasn't what I knew. So no, I can agree that shit at you. 18-year-old yeah. 18, 18 me did not know how to do anything on her own and probably had no business doing anything on her own. <laughs>
1: I, I get that same way. I don't go to the, the gas station. I mean, if I don't go to the same gas station, I'm just thinking about it. It drives me crazy. I did it last week. And of course it went wrong. I don't know what I did with my my card, but I got a message on the screen that I needed to go inside. I was like, Oh my God, now I'm going to have to talk to a real person and all yep. of that.
2: It's like, Oh yeah. I, Talking to people so, is like the scariest thing. I get scared when I have to call customer service agents. I think they're going to hate me right away.
1: Yeah, same. And especially because I have an accent. And Mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes for people to understand me. And Mm -hmm. it just like makes my anxiety higher Mm -hmm. makes it harder for me to like get words uh, out and just like a vicious
0: circle. See, See, I'm, see, I'm actually the opposite. So Uh, I will actually, I I know this sounds bad and I apologize for anyone working at Comcast who's listening right now, but I will, I will take my anger or frustration out on customer service and I will offer to lower people's like cable bills and Comcast bills, you know, for like, for fun. And I I lean, like I've offered, you're like, call T-Mobile for me, right? I'm like, yes, I love that. Right. I love like getting the deal and calling them. And the nice part too is, is that Uh, there's no, you know, then you never have to speak to them again. Like, like Mm -hmm. it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, AT&T probably has a file on me, I'm sure, but I don't know if T-Mobile does yet. And, um, but just like, yeah, doing that is actually something I very much enjoy. You're Um, so brave.
2: You're so brave. I'm scared to talk to the person when I order like clothes and then it goes on sale like a day later. I'm so scared when I ask for a price adjustment.
0: Oh, see, I'm really scared to do that
2: because I do it it all the time. What? it's not local <laughs> see it's usually like big chains It's it'll be like one of those big mall stores i'm like they can afford to toss me a six dollar refund and i'm so scared to call them and i'll be telling my friends or my family and they'll be like Haley, you were a litigator your train is a litigator you should not have a problem litigating the customer service i'm like nope nope can't do it
0: <laughs> so but yeah i um no, I, I very much do do enjoy doing that, and just I maybe it's it's only certain though. Like I don't know, I'd probably let the six dollars just go for like clothes, but maybe it's because I like technology and computers. I think when we're talking about one of our special interests, things might go over well. One of mine's technology, so I think with the internet, because like I won't call in like a dinner order or anything like that, but but I I, I will call a cable or phone company, and you know ha, ha, have no problem. Although I will say I get called, ma'am. So uh, quite a bit. Um, really? And, and yes. And apparently I sound like uh, like a very elderly woman over the phone. And so the plus the plus and upside <laughs> to that, though, is I am able to, you know, I, I just stop correcting them at this point, right? Do you just, it's just, do, you just,
2: do you just say, do you just introduce yourself as Andy because it's a little bit more ambiguous on gender as, of a name than Andrew?
0: You know what? I've literally never thought of that. I am going to start doing that. Thank you so much. That will make my life so much easier. Although,
2: yeah. I went, I went to law school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> although, although. I knew lots I, of
2: Andreas who would do it because it would make them look more powerful on filings.
0: I, I, that is brilliant. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. So, although if I am very mad at them, then I will point it out and then they'll feel really bad about it. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll even go as far to describe the anatomy I have versus the anatomy they don't think <laughs> oh I have, God. and then I usually get a deal, but I, I try not to be that mean. You, usually it's when I yeah, have a no business calling having, in the first they're place. Having,
2: they're having a hard time too. See, my thing yes. is I get really nervous and my voice goes up like three octaves and I sound like I'm a little kid or a teenager. So they already assume that I'm young and they're willing to do things because they think I'm like 15. So <laughs> I'll be like, hi, um, yeah, uh, yep yeah and i get so nervous and i and my voice goes high, so they just assume i'm young
0: so you guys
1: just bonded over this great right? yeah see
0: there we go <laughs> anxiety, um,
2: anxiety is real Yeah, especially that social anxiety like dealing it's easier for me to deal with a large audience or a group of people than dealing with that perfect stranger Ugh.
0: but if you're but if you're talking with a stranger about the law and being a lawyer right it's i mean easier. that is That is much different. And leading into a a question, um, if you were not a lawyer, what would you be doing if you were not Uh, a lawyer?
2: If I didn't go to law school, I think I probably would have wanted to be a journalist. Okay. I think I would have still wanted to ask people questions. I think I always wanted, I knew I always wanted to write. I feel like that would have been kind of that natural fit. And also, some. and I still think about this a lot because a lot of lawyers are journalists anyway. So- I get to write for all sorts of cool people. I also have interviewed people and some of my favorite TV journalists, because I'm also one of those nerds who watches like daytime television. So a lot of the cool people on daytime are lawyers who became like TV journalists and broadcasters. So I'm like, maybe that's what I'd be doing. I think it'd be very cool to be like a broadcaster or to be some kind of print journalist. I don't know. I could see that though sounds cool
1: i wanted to be a journal- journalist too when i was when i was a kid because i like writing not like a journalist that has to talk to people but
2: mm-hmm.
1: like a writer uh you you kind of became famous for being an autistic lawyer um mm-hmm. how has this changed you, changed you do you uh, do you wish you could go back and just be a lawyer who happens to have autism or how is that for you
2: yes and no so the cool thing is what happened really kind of i feel like changed our profession for the better So looking back, my profession never talked about mental health very well. We've always been behind the eight ball on everything. And I say this in the nicest way possible lawyers. We're slow on diversity and inclusion. We're slow on technology. We've got opinions from the Florida Bar back, like, I think maybe less than 10 years ago when MySpace was very out of favor telling lawyers how to regulate their MySpace presence. Like, that's how slow we are in adopting anything. So when it comes to mental health and anything in that kind of disability stigma, Lawyers are really, really bad. Like, we, you have to disclose if you have received treatment for mental health and mental illness on bar applications. They can discriminate against you. It's this whole big thing. So we're very bad about talking about anything in this realm. Thankfully, that's what actually is, kind of What is the logic here.
0: behind needing to disclose that on, on a bar application?
2: They're making sure that you are fit to practice law. That you don't have an impairment that would make you unfit to practice. I a lot of the questioning, if you ask me, is discriminatory under the ADA. There's lots of challenges to it. in nearly any state bar that still has mental health questions, most of them still do. And after several findings, the National Conference of Bar Examiners basically gave them all sample language to make them ask these questions that's like not discriminatory. But it kind of is. They're really going after people with more severe mental illnesses to question their confidence and capacity to practice. I don't agree with it. That's a whole other can of worms, but we're just very bad about these conversations. And I think for me, it was really great being able to open that conversation because all of a sudden we're doing different like legal education surrounding neurodiversity. We're having panels, there's other lawyers and law students who've come, are in law school now or who are later in their career who are more willing to disclose and share. And I think it's a really necessary change kind of like following the steps of the tech sector, honestly, but I do think in my career, it would have, in in a lot of ways, I think that if I wasn't openly autistic because of what I've done for the majority of my life, I would have never disclosed. And I say this because I know how people act. I know that there's lots of times it would have been against me. And I know even in my first legal job that I would be given a lot more technical tasks because it was assumed that I followed the stereotypes of autism, that I was this pattern seeking technology wizard. And so, I was talking about it with a group of lawyers not too long ago and they're like, oh, you were just getting typical first year stuff. And I was like, no, because the other first years in my office were getting really substantive stuff. They were doing the deep things. They were doing the deep dives. And I was getting this technical stuff, look for the patterns in the discovery, go through millions of documents, find some patterns, run the firm website as well. And I'm like, no, they just assumed I was a technology computer genius. I mean, and I spent so much of my early career trying to live up to that because I didn't want to burst their bubble. And when you're an autistic person with a job and you don't work for yourself, you really don't want to lose that. You want them to like you. You are ba- There's so much messaging surrounding employment that you're lucky to have a job in the first place. So you're kind of just trying to be this thing, even though you're not, and you're overcompensating and masking in the weirdest way possible of basically trying to seem like you match every autism stereotype at the same time. So I think I would have avoided that had I never disclosed or just been, just been a lawyer with autism as you're calling it. I think I would have been kind of in a different place but I don't regret it. I think that in a lot of ways it has helped both the Florida Bar and the national and lawyers nationally, actually. So I do get to serve on the Florida Bar's Young Lawyers Division Board of Governors. So it's the first time a lot of them have addressed disability issues more broadly that we've actually talked about it. I get to yell at them about accessibility every once in a while. We actually are doing neurodiversity programming so we can actually support our colleagues who might have other mental health conditions, ADHD, learning disabilities, et cetera. And autism, of course, as well. Like we're just, I think that it was a necessary conversation. I don't know. If, looking back, I I'm glad that I was able to help open that conversation. I don't, and I think this is how it was meant to be. But I think if I was never open, it never would have went down this way. And I'm sure someone else would have happily done it. But I'm grateful to have had the platform that I did.
0: I, I noticed that beyond the tech sector, one of them that's is, is finance, which is so broad that I'm in and. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, that seems to be a, a little bit slower, but it seems to be like, I, I really see a lot more, you know, lawyers seem to graduate graduate to like mm-hmm. even liking law, even if they're not lawyers, right? So I remember mm-hmm. just like saying when I like, ooh, I really like reading contracts, right? And I know <laughs> there's a million different types of law. Mm-hmm. And I know Eileen's probably looking at me, having seen my writing, you know, before it's edited. Right? And be like contract writing. No, but I really like it. And so, but, and I'm, and I'm told that there's a certain part of it where I think a higher percentage of the neurodivergent population, even, you know, is more fit for, again, all different aspects of, you know, mm-hmm. law, legal work, attorneys. I don't mm-hmm. have anything great to support that. Um, and there seems to be a lot of people embracing a lot of the work you're doing. My best friend mm-hmm. is a neurodivergent attorney as well. So I, may just have a bias there but (laughs) why do you why do you think that is even if it's not the stereotypical strengths as you mentioned there are still strengths right that absolutely neurodiversity with the law
2: so the dean of my law school who was not the dean when i was there but the dean the current dean we had a conversation about this several months ago and he said exactly probably the best way to ever describe it he's like law is the software of society he's like and the way he said that just law is the software of society i'm like that makes a lot of sense because, you know, there's a lot of folks on the spectrum who gravitate towards that idea of justice and fairness and all that stuff. And even just there's lots of rules. It's usually pretty hard to pass. Sometimes if you're really aggressive and you have a good idea, you can get to change the rules. There's a lot of writing. There's a lot of you can be as involved with people as you want and be a litigator. You could be a transactional attorney and never see people and just do contracts and, and deals all day. That it's such a broad field, really, that there's kind of something for anyone and I think what makes neurodiversity so great in law and why a lot of neurodivergent people do gravitate to it is it's just a different way of problem solving. Is that your brain doesn't see things the same way that everybody else does. And, sometime, and sometimes that's exactly what clients need. They need something, someone who's gonna think about their problems a little bit differently and not just assume it's one cut and dry solution because oftentimes it's not.
0: But I, I find that also individual, uh, autistic individuals can also really not like when rules aren't being followed, and mm-hmm. what I find uh, with the law or my experience can, with and it, and you can
2: persuade the court to make them follow the rules.
0: Well, yes, but then at the same time, too, just because something's the law doesn't mean like it's followed, right? And there's so much more to, well, I guess different parts of the law than what's actually the law, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And not right? all
2: laws, and no. not all laws, and not all laws, good law.
0: Yeah exactly yes. so do you, do you struggle with that or do you know others who do or i well, mean a I bit of see-
2: everything it's that yep. there's this desire to follow rules and then when the rules are really unfair there's a desire to break them and change them yes. so you kind of see i, I kind of love that and that our people are the first ones who are going to be like these are really shitty rules <laughs> that these that this is complete crap let's do what we can and it's just so exciting to see and i think that passion really does matter and especially once you get past those initial like barriers to entry in this profession. And I think that there's way too much gatekeeping of who is, and who isn't going to be a good lawyer anyway. Like I don't think passing the bar exam makes anybody a good lawyer. I, if you had to practice law the way that you take the bar exam, every single person would be convicted of malpractice.
1: Do you practice law right now?
2: I'm not practicing right now. I actually left my last practice in December, 2019. I got to start my own business. I mostly, do consulting. I get to geek out about ADA and policy for big companies and other stuff too. And I get to educate people. I, I got to teach a college class last semester and I'm teaching again next semester too. So I'm, I'm kind of just get to be a big nerd about all this kinds of disability stuff. And, but I still stay very lawyer involved because I think lawyers are pretty cool people. Just the job and culture surrounding firm life kind of isn't always the best. Sure. Sometimes, I guess.
1: I don't know. Hold so on. Firm culture is, firm. is wild. Yeah, I I don't know. I, for me, lawyers is such a, a hard job because you you can have to protect people who you don't really want to you know protect mm-hmm. uh, if that makes sense. And that's something that I feel like I would have such a hard time doing. Like you know mm-hmm. having to pretend that this person is a good person. And I don't know. Maybe I I get that from movies and I haven't really mm-hmm. seen it in real life. But mm-hmm. I I know it's true. Like sometimes. They can assign you like lawyers uh they can assign yeah. you to someone, and you yeah. yeah
2: that that's usually public defenders so if you can't if you're like in criminal and you can't afford an attorney that you'll get appointed one from the government yeah i actually i actually want it so i actually very briefly wanted to be a public defender and usually whenever you tell people that you want to be a criminal defense attorney for two seconds or that you want to be a public defender everybody's first question is how can you possibly defend someone who like maybe killed somebody yeah and the honest thing about public defenders is that it's not whether or not the person's guilty, it's whether or not their, their rights were violated. So whether the cops did like an illegal search on their property, maybe there's something that can be excluded. So even when you go to trial, you don't get the full picture of the evidence because maybe there was something that was obtained illegally and it got lost. It's such, a, it's so wild. This is why I'm never gonna serve on a jury. I know too much, but I think that it's really about protecting someone's rights. And I think in a lot of ways, public defense is really that you're protect, you're trying to advocate for the underdog, so I guess that's kind of how I see it. Is you're seeing someone who usually wouldn't have access to any kind of legal services. They might have done something wrong, or they might not have. You don't really know, and it. You honestly, I don't think that's kind of what matters is whether or not they did it. I think what matters is is this person getting their constitutional right to an attorney. Are they getting a fair shot in their day in court? I think that's kind of the mindset you have to have. I think you have to almost put those feelings aside. But I was not a public defender. But I feel like that's kind of the only way I think I would have been able to rationally approach it. Yeah, and
0: I will never get to serve on a jury because I am a libertarian all for jury nullification. So if I say that, I'm I'm out. Anyway, moving on.
2: I just know how the legal system works, and I'm like, okay, yeah. How, ma- how many motions eliminate happened before we got to trial? How much evidence was not included?
0: Yeah.
1: No so. idea what's going on, but
2: <laughs> it, 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 it's a it's a mess. So- so basically, Eileen, just-
1: basically,
0: if also- I if I disagreed with the law, I would just say whether they're not guilty, whether they are or they're not. Right. Mm-hmm. It's called, you know, basically the jury should get to decide. Right. So if I think mm-hmm. it's dumb, then I would say not guilty. So they they don't like that. So, oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. That would freak out. That would freak them out. I know. <laughs> I actually know because I have friends who do very much do jury trials. They used to ask about the political affiliations of some of their jurors or they would try to look it up if they could. Because they knew it might, it might sway, it might make them make decisions one way or another. There's some really weird stuff. So I actually used to do ethics research when I was in law school, and I remember I got to present like continuing education on whether or not you could stalk your jurors on like Facebook. Like, are you allowed to do that? What's the answer? You are, as long as it doesn't send them notifications.
0: Okay. So long.
2: So you can't like friend your jurors if you if you like view their LinkedIn profile. You can't have it send like a. You have to like have your settings so it doesn't send like so-and-so looked at your profile because that would be considered a communication to the juror. Got so it. It, it was so interesting though, but yes, you can go look them up on Facebook. You just don't like their posts, don't friend them, don't do anything that's a communication. Got it, thank, thank you. you. It, it's like the I know, There's all sorts of really weird legal stuff. <laughs> I just think it's super fascinating, but I think if I do go back to practice one day and I'm sure there might be a point in my life where I want to, I would probably rather be actually in elder law like we're talking about with conservatorships and guardianships and supported decision making or i'd like to do labor and employment and actually get to do stuff with like anti-discrimination disability discrimination at work ada or also the thing that i think is super fascinating that i'm trying to learn more about because i just think it's interesting is labor unions so i think labor and employment is just so interesting yeah (laughs) <laughs> we're like yeah it's, a, it's okay it's okay in my, it's okay in my old life I I got to sue insurance companies
0: well, well that That's excites me fun. there we yeah. go right I like so it. I, I yeah. represented
2: I represented hospitals okay That's not good. people I was not a personal injury lawyer I got to represent hospitals trying to get money from insurers okay not so exciting <laughs>
0: no I, I think well anyway I, I mean to me but we won't bore the other you know
2: No, see, this is you... why I think talking about autism and disability is far more fun. It's a much better job.
0: <laughs> if you not talk better, about life better... insurance law? I mean, there we go. No. Like, I'm, I'm in, right? I'm saying, I have,
2: I don't know anything. <laughs> no, no, because we. Can, I don't know that much about life insurance and I don't think Eileen and I are going to want to listen to you geek out about life insurance a little bit too much.
0: Well, it's basically contract law, but okay, let's move on. Um, okay, <laughs> so, uh, okay, quick fire questions. So, um, yes, so Eileen is going to ask a bunch of, unless am I doing the quick fire questions, Eileen?
1: I, I got it. You sure? Yeah. Okay. So I, I can see okay. what uh, you wrote in there today. Yeah, I
0: always do. a I always uh, put a just random quick fire question in there for Eileen, like right before the podcast, so she doesn't have time to read it until she reads it out loud for fun. Um, <laughs> so the quick fire questions just, Don't overthink it in the nicest way possible and just give the, you know, first answer that comes to your mind. And, uh, there's six of them and here we go. Okay. What is the best piece of advice you've ever
1: been given? Be yourself. (laughs) What do you like to do to relax?
2: Play video games.
1: Read books. What's your favorite?
2: I have a switch and I'm obsessed with it and I've been actually replay. What have I been playing? Um, pokemon yeah me too nice let's got, go i i got Poke, the new pokemon snap and oh. it's so relaxing all you do is just take pictures of pokemon it's yeah, like really it's delicious. kind of like going on a weird like like like, like baby little pokemon safari it's like a little vehicle thing and you just snap little pictures of no that sounds fun i like that it's
1: what's so what's your favorite food
2: pizza
0: what kind of pizza
2: cheese i'm boring okay I don't like experimenting. I like most of my food plans.
0: <laughs>
1: What's your favorite movie, film, TV show?
2: Legally Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's funny.
1: Because you are autistic, you are obviously amazing at memorizing everything. Tell us the most obscure low fact you remember. Oh my
2: god, now I'm going to overthink this.
0: I'm do sure you want me to share wine? Sure. That because of pre-prohibition, the USPS, it is illegal to ship alcohol. That's why only UPS and FedEx can ship alcohol.
2: Why is that?
0: Because before UPS and FedEx existed, before we made alcohol illegal, we we made it so the United States Postal Service could not ship alcohol. That is still Mm -hmm. illegal to this day. That is why you can only ship alcohol through FedEx and UPS.
2: But All the drug dealers
0: use the post office.
2: Yes, that's good to you know. I had no idea. Yeah, I can't. I can't compete with that. But yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Like, I don't feel like I have any fun legal facts. i like things that I think are just really ridiculous, with like Florida's involuntary psych law. But that's just because I, I think t- it's solid. It. Yeah, that sure. that if you are a considered a danger to yourself or others, that you can be placed on a mandatory seventy-two hour psych hold. What's that? And like they could put you in a psychiatric hospital for like oh. three days. And the thing is, it gets used a lot against kids with developmental disabilities in schools because they don't want to arrest them because school resource officers get like, the, do we have to arrest this kid or do we do a psych hold? And there's all sorts of like little wrinkles in there. It's it's called the Baker Act. It's really confusing. And it is, I think it gets overused for things it should not get used for.
1: Yeah. What's considered a
2: danger to yourself? Like, where is the? Exactly. And you see autistic kids who might something t- say something sarcastic, like, or they don't, or they don't know it's sarcasm. Like, oh, I might kill myself or something. And some teacher hears it, and they think there's a serious psychiatric problem. And even though there's a developmental disability exception, they'll say that it's related to some kind of anxiety, depression, something else. And then, so, and then the kid ends up in like psych, in a psych hospital basically. And they have no business being there. And the parents don't get informed. It's a disaster. There's all sorts of really crazy news stories about this if you ever look into it about kids that end up basically in psych holds or arrested because of the Baker Act. That sounds really sad. It is. It's the one thing that if I felt like I knew more about it, if I had the skill set, I feel like I'd want to be fighting it. Yeah. Um, and where can
1: people find you online? Do you want to tell them anything sure. you want to ad- um,
2: advertise?
0: Anything you're working on? I, I.
2: Okay. There's always something I'm working on in my little world. So... I hate being a salesperson, but I have a new book out now called Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals, so how we can be better in the working world, also with in some other legal-related things, but most of it's not a legal book, I promise. It's super readable. My mom is not a lawyer, and she said it was good, so I'm trusting her. And she, so there's all sorts of cool stuff in there, and we also do talk a little bit about courtroom. We talk a little bit about clients, representation, all that good stuff, and a lot of workplace stuff. You can find that on my website or at the American Bar Association, which is the other ABA. So most times when you guys say ABA, my first default the American Bar Association and not the intervention. So I get very, very confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that that's the worst part of being a lawyer. You don't know what ABA anybody's talking about. So...
1: That's it. No social media. Oh, social media. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) I mean,
2: up to you. I I was getting, I was, I had to take a pause. I felt like I was going to just keep rambling and I sound like a, like a train, like just like running, running, running. Okay. Social media. So you can find me on most social media at Haley Moss art. I'm on Instagram at Haley.Moss. I know I finally got my name on Instagram. I've been waiting forever for that to happen. And you can visit me at HaleyMoss.net
1: sounds good well thank you for joining us today and talking about all these topics i don't think we've uh, talked about that stuff before so it was
2: it was nice this was a lot of fun thank you thank you thank, thank you both for taking the time to talk to me of course Bye-bye. bye 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 bye